Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for April 6th, 2018. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the latest film news. This is Slash Film senior writer Ben Pearson, and joining me today are Slash Film writers Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Guys, let's just go ahead and jump right into the news today. HT... Let's talk a little bit about Rogue One. Take us back to the the good old days when Rogue One, a Star Wars story, was still in production. Uh, screenwriter Tony Gilroy has now released a new interview sort of explaining his uh, experience working on the movie. What do we know? So Tony Gilroy is um, an Oscar-winning screenwriter that Disney and Lucasfilm kind of brought on last minute to during reshoots, the reshoot stage of Rogue One, which Gareth Edwards was originally uh directing. And through the rumor mill and sort of the giant paycheck that Tony Gilroy got um, for his work on Rogue One, we kind of got the idea that he was essentially helming these reshoots and tweaked about 40% of um, the movie. We're not really sure exactly how much, but that's like the general guess. Uh, But now for the first time since 2016, Tony Gilroy is speaking a little bit more candidly about his uh, experience with Rogue One. And he essentially said that uh, the production was a terrible, terrible mess. And um, 
it was a movie that there was a lot of confusion around it. Uh, so he said um, in this interview with the moment with Brian Kuppelman podcast, if you look at Rogue, all the difficulty with Rogue, all the confusion of it and all the mess. And in the end, when you get in there, it's actually very, very simple to solve because you sort of go, this is a movie where folks just look everyone is going to die. So it's a movie about sacrifice. So that sort of last third of the movie, it seems to imply that he kind of is the one who spearheaded that and kind of salvaged the movie in the end, because the first two thirds are a little bit of a mess. And, um, he got, he said that he also got a, um, uh, he easily won a screenplay credit in arbitration. So that kind of implies too, that even though he came on really late in the, in the production and long after the director's cut had uh, actually been done, he the, his his role in it was large enough that he was able to get a co-writing um, screenplay credit. And that's a pretty big deal when the director's cut essentially is done and the screenplay is essentially set in stone at that point. Yeah, that is pretty remarkable, especially because we know that Rogue One underwent, uh, you know, a, a significant amount of changes we saw in the trailers or so many shots in those trailers that didn't make it into the final cut the idea that the movie was done and then Gilroy came on and still was able to change yeah I think I think the arbitration number is something like 33% of the screenplay before he actually gets official credit so for him to do that much or more um, is is really a pretty remarkable thing that late in the game. Um, Chris, what are your thoughts about Rogue One, and, and do you think that uh, from what we've all these all these stories that we've gathered over the years, do you think that Tony Gilroy uh, ended up helping the movie, or would you have rather have seen what Gareth Edwards originally had in mind? Uh, I personally would rather see what Gareth Edwards did. I mean, I'm not like a huge Gareth Edwards fan. I don't, I don't think he's like, you know, a, a fantastic filmmaker or anything, but the, the version of rogue one we got, uh, just felt very bland to me. Like all the elements were there to make a really great movie. I mean, the cast was great and the characters in theory are great, but the, the end result was, is really disappointing. And, uh, I just remember like the early trailers made it look so cool. And, Half the, you know, that trailer stuff didn't even end up in the movie. So I'm really curious to see, you know, I wish, I, you know, I doubt they ever will, but I really wish Lucasfilm and Disney would release like the, the Gareth Edwards cut to just let us see how it looked. Yeah, at this point, Lucasfilm and Disney are building up so many potential options for them to maybe release these, you know, original cuts from, you know, people like Lord and Miller and stuff like that from... For all these things, and like you're saying, I, I don't think that's ever going to happen, but, you know, let's say 25 years go by and they're like, hey, let's try to make some extra money off this stuff. I mean, maybe, maybe one day they could end up releasing some of that stuff. I'm not sure, like, contractually they would be legally allowed to do that based on uh, all of, you know, what whatever they have uh, written into those contracts with these filmmakers that they've since sort of parted ways with. But that would be a really fascinating thing to see. Uh, HG, what do you think about Rogue One? Well, I had mixed feelings about it. I did not like the first two thirds of the movie, but the last third of the movie almost salvaged it for me just because I finally understood what that movie was going for. And it was sad to me that I only started caring about the characters, you know, once they started sacrificing their lives. Spoiler alert for Rogue One. Um, but yeah, it's it. I liked the idea going into it, but it was a really incoherent mess for the first half of the movie. Um, but I actually am interested to to one, I'm kind of wondering, um, all this sort of behind the scenes reshuffling and uh, disorder that's going on at Lucasfilm, is that 
um, is it more public just because, you know, it's Star Wars and it's such a massive franchise and all eyes are on it? Or is it because we we more recently are getting um, like the entertainment media is getting more interested in this kind of um behind the scenes production process. So I, cause I don't, I wonder if there are other movies that have just as much disorder as this, but aren't as widely uh, reported on. I think this is something that's been going on for a long time. I mean, I, I'm mm-hmm. not uh, as familiar with the history of entertainment journalism as I am with the history of movies, but I, I remember reading reports about how like for Cleopatra back in the day, mm. um, you know, uh, like Variety and all of those, the trade newspapers that have been around forever were were like really had it out for that movie because it was so over budget and all that stuff. I mean, same thing that happened with James Cameron's Avatar and that was in the late 90s. All of these these trade outlets and, and newspapers and stuff were... Oh, do you mean Titanic? Yes. What did I say? Avatar? You said Avatar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Titanic, <laughs> Titanic. Um, yeah, they, you know, they were like documenting all of this stuff. So I think the interest has been there for a long time. Um, the idea that uh, Star Wars is is back and, you know, bigger than ever and is uh, more clickable than ever, I think it maybe drives a little bit of that. Chris, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it is interesting to see, you know, all, all this, this sudden rush of, I don't know, part of me wonders if it has something to do with solo in that they're someone's playing like damage control like someone's worried that solo is going to turn out not great so they're trying to get all these other star wars stories out before that i don't know that could just be like i'm reading too much into it interesting all right yeah we'll have to see solo i think is going to be playing at the Cannes film festival and then it comes out uh like just over a month and a half from now something like that end of may, may right may may 25th yeah okay cool so we'll we'll see what's going on with that uh let's move on to our next story and that is the amazon adaptation of a comic book called the boys has found one of its lead actors chris tell us who's on board now uh, Carl Urban, who was in Dread and uh, Roy, uh, Thor Ragnarok and the, the rebooted Star Trek franchise, is just the latest uh, addition to this show for Amazon, adapted from the uh, Garth Ennis, Derek Robertson comic. Um, I've never read the comic, but I've, I've heard a lot of good things about it. It's set in this – it's set in a world where superheroes exist, but superheroes have sort of let fame go to their heads, so – the CIA has put together this like covert organization that monitors uh, superheroes, and that those are the the titular boys, if you will. So uh, Amazon putting this show together. Um, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg are apparently involved, and Supernatural creator Eric Kripke is the showrunner. So who is Carl Urban going to be playing in the show? Uh, he is playing a character named Billy Butcher, who is the the head of the organization tracking the superheroes. So I have also never read this comic, but um, to me, there's something about this concept that feels like it should have been out already. It sort of feels like something that should have come out around the time that Zack Snyder's Watchmen came out, like right in the in the early to to. I guess it's tough to to put a time stamp on the superhero boom since we're still in the middle of it and we don't even know like there's no end in sight so it's it's tough to say like oh in the middle era of the superhero movies because that could still be 10 years from now um you know once the the entire timeline is traced when it's all said and done but um it, it just feels like something that that uh has we've sort of seen concepts like this before we've seen it sounds like it's trying to be 
subversive and edgy and like i don't know if that's something that is going to connect with audiences in 2018 uh hj do you, do you think the boys is something that you would watch even if carl urban is involved yeah, I agree with you, Ben. I think we're sort of in a different era of superhero movies now where it's not about all about nihilism and sort of the subversive take on superheroes and what they actually would be in reality. Um, we're here in a new sort of more optimistic era, something that is much more um, earnest and genuine. So I wonder if like this is a step backwards or maybe there'll be a different take on it. Maybe it won't be like a rehash of Watchmen. Yeah, and um, Gareth, and, or I'm sorry, Garth Ennis is uh, one of his other sh- uh, com- famous comic books is Preacher, and that show is on AMC. Um, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg are involved with that show, and it's it's pretty accurate to the comic books in the tone of it. Um, it's it's not quite as intense because Ennis was able to get away with a lot more on the page than you can uh, even on a cable network. So it'll be interesting to see what Amazon does with it because we haven't really seen something uh, quite this edgy from them before. But uh, Chris, are you interested in, in watching this show? I think Carl Urban is like the main uh, quote-unquote name actor in this thing. He's, he's certainly the person with the most star power. Are you going to check this out? I really don't know. I, I agree that this does feel very dated. Like there was a, a, an era when it felt like superhero, there was a like a, a, a string of superhero movies that were trying to deconstruct the whole superhero mythos. Like there was like kick-ass and stuff like that. And that's what this feels like it's from that era. So I don't, I don't know how it's going to turn out. I guess we'll see. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about uh, a Dungeons and Dragons movie. So this was sort of interesting. I was at the um, Hollywood Press Junket for Rampage, the upcoming Dwayne Johnson film yesterday. And during the press conference, uh, Joe Manganiello, the guy who starred in True Blood and he played, I think, Deathstroke <laughs> very briefly in uh, Justice League. Um, he revealed that Dwayne The Rock Johnson was actually in talks to lead a Dungeons & Dragons movie at one point. So uh, one of the the moderator asked Joe Manganiello how he came to be in Rampage, and he said, I wrote a version of a Dungeons & Dragons film when it was at Warner Brothers, and I found out that Brad Payton, who's the director of Rampage, uh, was a big fan of the property and was looking to direct a Dungeons & Dragons film. I think they were also talking to you about that. And he like pointed to Dwayne Johnson, who nodded. Uh, so I got my agents to connect me to Brad and I said, I want to talk to Brad and see what his idea is. I have this script. We got on a Skype call. And after a few minutes, Brad was like, Hey man, listen, I'm down in Atlanta. I'm getting ready to shoot this movie rampage. I've got this great role. If you want to play it, why don't you come down? We'll shoot this movie. We'll talk about Dungeons and the Dragons and we'll go from there. That's how I ended up in rampage. So, uh, we didn't have the chance to follow up and ask about the status of that project or whether or not Johnson is actually still in active discussions about maybe starring in this thing. But uh, the idea of Dwayne Johnson starring in the Dungeons and Dragons movie um, strikes me as a little bit odd and also kind of hilarious, especially because Vin Diesel, who Johnson has been beefing with for (laughs) like over a year at this point, uh, is a huge Dungeons and Dragons fan. He has talked about 
how he essentially plans the Fast and Furious franchise like a dungeon master, and the idea that that Johnson could theoretically swoop in and star in a Dungeons and Dragons movie, <laughs> and and Diesel would just be sitting on the sidelines is kind of hilarious to me. So uh, I don't know. I, I've never played Dungeons and Dragons myself. I should have asked Jacob to come on because I know he's big into uh, games of this type. But have either of you ever played Dungeons and Dragons? First of all, and then uh, and then what do you think about the idea of a Dwayne Johnson Dungeons Dungeons and Dragons film. Uh, HTL, let's start with you. I've never played Dungeons and Dragons. The closest I've gotten is tabletop games, and those are nowhere close to Dungeons and Dragons, which re- required a larger stretch of imagination, I think. But I would watch a Dungeons and Dragons movie, I think. I think it would be, it has a lot of potential to be um, the launching board for a lot of really interesting stories, just because like Dungeons and Dragons itself is just like generic fantasy high fantasy tropes so you can do really anything you want with it what do you think chris uh i have never played uh dungeons and dragons it actually to me it makes sense that if they were going to make a dungeons and dragons movie which they are that they would approach the rock because it just seems like anytime there's like a quote-unquote generic action franchise tentpole like he's the one they go to to like make it seem legitimate like you know they when they made that gi joe sequel they added him to that and then they added him to the fast and the furious and then they added him to jumanji it just seems like he's like the go-to guy in hollywood for uh high concept ideas like this so um it just seems plausible to me yeah i wonder if there are people who and, and like i i've never played the game but i've i'm into the idea of playing it it sounds really fascinating and i I think it's all about it from what i can gather and and watching a community episode about it it's all about the uh the dungeon master and how they sort of bring people into that world so there are a lot of different ways that a movie could go um but i I wonder if there are people who grew up playing DD who are really into this world still who are hearing this and and reading about these Uh, versions of the movie that are floating around out there and are just heartbroken because these two jacked guys, Dwayne Johnson and Joe Manganiello, are are like the total jocks of Hollywood are (laughs) attached to this property. It seems very um, against the the typical, stereotypical um, (laughs) depiction of people who play Dungeons and Dragons. So I wonder uh, what people think about that. Yeah, I feel like it... Dungeons and Dragons movie, like what you would think of is something very serious, but when you add Dwayne Johnson to the mix, it suddenly becomes extremely campy or like high octane kind of silly action film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, you know, he could, I think he it would make it more fun, honestly. It would, it would make it less sort of self-serious and he could play an orc or something. Oh, okay. I don't really know what <laughs> the elves are. I'm sorry. Please don't like get angry at me because I don't know the actual the names of the Dungeons the and Dragons characters, creatures. <laughs> yeah. Uh, man, well, yeah, we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed and see, because I, I would definitely watch that, so we'll see uh, if that project actually comes together. I think a separate Dungeons & Dragons movie is actually still in development at a different studio right now, so this, this could be one of those parallel development things where one of them, you know, gets to the finish line first, so we'll be sure to keep you guys posted if we hear anything official about any of that. Let's move on to our next story, and that is uh, John Krasinski and Emily Blunt, who, uh, in a new interview, have revealed that they don't really mind the fact that they missed out on the Marvel. Marvel Cinematic Universe. Chris, paint us a picture. For those who don't remember, how were Krasinski and Blunt potentially going to be involved with Marvel? Uh, yeah, so in some alternate universe somewhere, uh, John Krasinski and Emily Blunt would both be appearing in Avengers Infinity War later this month because uh, Emily Blunt was originally cast as Black Widow before Scarlett Johansson, 
but scheduling difficulties uh, basically killed that. Um, she she was making Gulliver's Travels, which is a uh, Jack Black movie I don't think anyone remembers anymore, but at the time, so that kept her from doing uh, Iron Man 2. And then John Krasinski was, for a while, the front runner to play Captain America, but then that fell through and Chris Evans took on the role. Um, so uh, Blunt and Krasinski, they're out promoting A Quiet Place right now, and during you know that promotional tour, someone asked them, you know, do you do you regret not being in the MCU? And they both basically said, you know, not really. And Emily Blunt, for her part, said. Uh, if she had done, you know, if she had been in the MCU, it would have kept her from doing a lot of parts she liked doing in, you know, otherwise. And John Krasinski basically said he doesn't really even think about it that much anymore. So um, I don't know if they're lying. They Maybe they do think about it, but <laughs> but these seem like pretty down-to-earth answers here. And, you know, it, it's a big commitment to join the MCU. I mean, uh, Joaquin Phoenix for a while was the frontrunner to play um, Doctor Strange, and he didn't want to do it just because he didn't really like the idea of committing to so many movies. So if you sign up for the MCU, you end up like it's like you're signing up for life. Basically, you're going to have to do a lot of movies. And I could understand if, you know, you want to do a lot of other things, not wanting to do that. Yeah. And I think, you know, as much as I really like both of these actors and think they probably would have been really good in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I think they probably made the right call here, especially having seen A Quiet Place and how good both of them are. Uh, in that film, both as performers and then Krasinski as a, a co-writer and director, um, it's a really, really solid movie. And I, I'm almost certain we wouldn't have gotten that version of that film had they, you know, taken that that alternate path there. So um, that's a, a pretty interesting what if scenario. But there are always stories that you hear about that. And, and you just wonder, like, how the entire Hollywood landscape might shift if something had gone the other way, because people can have uh, sizable ripple effects, you know, impacts throughout the industry that sort of change. And like, what if A Quiet Place sparks a franchise and that, you know, turns into a whole thing? I mean, there's, there's so many what if scenarios to, to take into consideration there. But uh, let's move on. HT, tell me about uh, Isao Takahata. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He um, yes. passed away yesterday, and you wrote this really great uh, appreciation of him. Uh, tell us who he is and why he was important to you. Yeah, so Isao Takahata um, passed away on April 5th at the age of 82, and he's the co-founder of Studio Ghibli alongside Hayao Miyazaki and two other people, and he was a frequent collaborator with Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, he produced... Uh, his classic films like Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind, and Castle in the Sky. But uh, Takahata was also a really uh, talented director who doesn't quite get the same name recognition as Miyazaki does, which is a shame because he helped build Ghibli from the ground up, and he has some of the most uh, amazing experimental films that Ghibli had to offer. So one of his greatest works was uh, this really sorrowful anti-war film, Grave of the Fireflies, which was actually released uh, alongside My Neighbor Totoro as um, My Neighbor Totoro as a double feature because Takahata and Miyazaki were working on it simultaneously and decided to release it in Japan uh, back to back, which is a really interesting choice because uh, My Neighbor Totoro is also a World War II film, but it's incredibly whimsical and cheery, whereas Grave of the Fireflies is a very bleak experience and. Um, 
one of the saddest films of all time. And uh, Takahata is just is such a great filmmaker who is, I guess, more known in his home country of Japan because I feel like his films speak more to the Japanese culture than Miyazaki's films do. They're not quite as grand or sweeping. They don't have like the fantastical scope that a lot of Miyazaki's films do. Mm. And while Miyazaki does have a lot of films that uh, pay homage or set in Japan are very like rooted in Japanese uh, mythology and culture, such as Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke. A lot of his films actually are uh, really coded with Western sort of um, imagery and mythology. And he, he blends it together really well. So I'm not saying like he's uh, denying Japan or something like that. But I feel like Takahata is definitely more in tune, I guess, with the Japanese culture. So a lot of his other great films include uh, Only Yesterday, which was only released in the U.S. two two years ago in 2016, despite being released in um, 1991 in Japan. And then, um, and that one is a really beautiful poetic coming of age film uh, slash sort of adult drama as well. It's, It's not it's very much the opposite of what we think of a lot of Ghibli films and that there are really no fantastical elements. And then another one is Pompoko, which is, I guess, kind of the polar opposite because it's about raccoon dogs uh, who are called the Tanuki, which are sort of spirits of the forest and who can shapeshift using their ball sacks. So (laughs) it's very weird. I saw it as a kid and I'm like, are are those their scrotums? Are they using their genitals to shapeshift and fly? So it's a very, it's it's a strange film. And he's like, he just runs the gamut between like really heartbreaking, heart-wrenching World War II dramas, that strange, surreal movies like Pompoko, uh, more lighthearted comedic fare like My Neighbors, the Yamadas. And then... um, he was most recently nominated for an Oscar for The Tale of Princess Kaguya, which came out in, um, oh, what was it? 2014. And I think that was definitely his masterpiece. It is just, it's so stunningly animated in this um, hand-drawn style that is not quite like the Studio Ghibli house style that we've seen. And it's this beautiful sort of fairy tale that's very um, sort of engulfed in Japanese folklore and everything like that. It's so beautiful and I highly recommend it. I highly recommend you seeing all of his films. He doesn't have quite um, the catalog that Miyazaki does, but he definitely deserves to have his legacy be just as appreciated as Miyazaki. Yeah, I am uh, woefully uneducated when it comes to Studio Ghibli films. I've seen only like one or two, I think, total. So you've convinced me to uh, to add some of Takahata's films to my personal queue. Uh, Chris, do you have any relationship with uh, Ghibli or, or any of these movies? No, this is uh, one of my unfortunate blind spots in cinema, and I always mean to uh, remedy it, and I, I need to get around to it sooner rather than later. <laughs> yeah, so maybe uh, maybe HT's piece, which you guys can read in the show notes, I've linked to it there, um, is uh, is enough to, to convince us to finally get off our asses and <laughs> do something about that. Um, let's move on to uh, a couple of, uh, I guess, anniversary celebration stories. Uh, first up, the... 25th anniversary of Jurassic Park is coming up, and how is Universal going to be celebrating that, Chris? Uh, they're hosting a, a big uh, two-day event on May 11th and May 12th at Universal Studios Hollywood, where uh, they're going to screen the film in their their uh, Universal has this big renovated uh, Universal CityWalk theater. It's a state-of-the-art theater that has. Uh, all this stuff. There's like a laundry list of things this this theater has. I don't know what any of it means, but it sounds very expensive. And 
<laughs> they spared no expense. Yes. So they'll be they'll be screening the film, and then there's a, a you know an event afterwards in the park itself by the uh, the Jurassic Park ride, and anyone who goes is going to get all this swag. It it sounds very cool if you're if you're in. California, which I am not, and if you're near Universal Studios and you can attend this, uh, it sounds like something. If you're a fan of the film, that is definitely worth attending. Yeah, and they're supposed to have like props from the movie around too, right? Yeah, there's gonna yeah, there's gonna have and they're gonna be like people dressed as the dinosaurs walking around. I don't know how it's gonna work. <laughs> it's gonna be crazy, but yeah, and it's 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 another nice reminder of how old I am because I remember seeing Jurassic Park in theaters the weekend it came out. And now here it's the 25th anniversary. So thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of right there with you on that one. Um, I, uh, so th- this event takes place on May 11th and 12th for those of you who are interested and you can read more about it at slash One of the other, uh, anniversary stories, uh, involves James Cameron's Titanic. Um, that film came out in 1997 and now, uh, Fox is going to be hosting, uh, actually the Alamo Draft House is going to be hosting, technically, a rolling roadshow screening of Titanic that actually takes place on the Queen Mary Ocean Liner in Long Beach, California. So it's a good time for people who loved, you know, major blockbuster films who happen to be living in California right now. I remember hearing about the rolling roadshow before I moved to California and thinking, like, how amazing that idea sounds. Like, Draft House, essentially, for those who don't know, the rolling roadshow concept is uh, Draft House organizes these screenings all across the country where um, they will play a movie in a location that's thematically appropriate for that movie. So I think they've screened Jaws in a pool where everyone sits on, you know, like floaties and stuff and just like hangs out in a pool and watches the movie that way. I, I remember uh, reading about this one where they went to they and they screened uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind at Devil's Tower in Wyoming, which is like a key location in that movie. Um, and that just seems like an amazing uh, you know, cinematic experience to have. And this one is uh, is about as close as you can get to being on the Titanic because the Queen Mary um, is actually part of the same White Star line that the Titanic was a part of. And uh, it's actually, I think, one and a half times larger, the ship, than the actual Titanic. Uh, but there's a museum. It, it's docked in Long Beach right now. And there's a museum, and they have, like, a Titanic exhibit there with photos and artifacts and stuff from the actual ship. And they're going to be hosting this screening on, what is the date? April, let me make sure I get this right so everyone knows, April 21st, 2018, which is uh, just, like, a week or so after the 106th anniversary of the actual sinking of the Titanic. So um, tickets will include uh, a self-guided tour of the ship. So you can like wander around and check everything out yourself. And then they're actually going to be screening the film and stuff there too. So uh, yeah, it sounds like if you're in California and, and interested in any of that, uh, this is a, a, you know, a good period of time for you to check out these really cool screening opportunities. Um, is this something that either of you would be interested in if you were out here, HC? Are they going to sink the Titanic? <laughs> the That's sink, the question. Sink the Queen Mary? Yeah, that would be uh, <laughs> that would be a way to, to certainly bring it down, and make some more headlines out of it. Um, would you uh, Would you want to watch Titanic on a ship like this? Um, yeah, I think that would be a really cool experience. I once watched Jaws while in a swimming pool, so nice. that was pretty fun. Yeah, so I would go do it, but it is on the opposite side of the country for me, so not exactly practical. Not. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Chris, what about you? Is this something you would you would see? Absolutely. I wish this were near me because I would definitely do this because uh, 
I am unashamed to say I really like Titanic. I know there's like a weird, <laughs> there's been weird backlash about that movie over the over the years, but I I unapologetically like Titanic, so I would do this. Yeah, it's been on TV a lot lately, and I've caught you know different parts of it, and just like I get sucked in every time. It's so well constructed and just a really really solid movie. So if anybody out there has not seen Titanic since '97 and have sort of been you know, brushing it off or dismissing it, I would highly recommend go back and check it out because it's totally worth uh, revisiting. Um, Who just likes Titanic? It's a romance and an action film and historical epic all in one. Yeah, it's it's really great. I mean, I don't think you guys need us to tell you that Titanic is great, but that's where we are. Uh, all right, that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. Uh, this show is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find at SlashFilm.com. You can subscribe to Slash Film Daily on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Email us at peter at slashfilm.com, all of your feedback, questions, concerns, comments you might have. And if you do, be sure to leave your name and general geographic location in your email in case we mention it on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That really does help us out a lot. So tell your friends about it. Spread the word any way you can. And uh, let's go around the circle really quickly and tell people where they can find more of our work online. HT, let's start with you. You can find me every day at slashfilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at htranbui. Chris? I'm also at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at CEvangelista413. You can find me writing at SlashFilm as well. You can find me on Twitter at Ben Pears. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you guys on Monday.